Okay, so this week we are with the security team, and I've got two members of the security team with me. First, I've got. I'm Stu Hurst. And Oscar. Um, and I guess you guys, so Stu, you've been with the company for, for a long time now, haven't you? You're one yeah. of the older. Not older, that's a bit wrong. <laughs> I joined at the start of 2015, uh, so yeah, two, two, nearly two and a half years. And Oscar, I think you're a bit newer, aren't you? Yeah, so I joined last year, in May, I believe. Um, so just before I hit recorded, we started talking about accents, and you said you were Swedish. That's correct. Uh, which is good, because now to think about it, that's a nationality we haven't had on the podcast before. So that's that's good. We, that's another nationality ticked right. off on, on Skyscanner List. Brilliant. Um, so you're part of the security team. Now, again, when I was in the kitchen earlier, I noticed a poster um, that you guys had put up on a security topic and noticed that you now have a security team logo. We do. What is that logo? Good question. It appeared to me to be a cat punching someone. Is that what it is? Uh, not really. It's a, it's a luchador, isn't it? It's a yeah, luchador. Me- Mexican wrestler. Mexican wrestler, yeah. Being chased? I think it's sort of trying to sort of wrestle uh, like malware or something I <laughs> yeah. think that's the we're point we're not entirely least. sure where this no. Mexican wrestler thing think, has yeah. come from but <laughs> it seemed to have stuck so we've, uh, we've, we've went with it uh, on a previous podcast we had Tygon on uh, whose icon is a tiger lion thing so I'll, I'll include a link to a picture of our, of our security logo I didn't tell you we were going to talk about that either but I thought <laughs> it was a nice lead in um, so as the security team, what, what are your, your main duties here at Skyscanner? What sort of things do you guys look after? So f- I guess fundamentally we're here to protect brand, reputation, user data. Um, there's a whole raft of, of security concerns, I guess, for any business. Uh, we're no different. And I guess um, when we talk about that data, it's not just um, our users' data. I guess we've got a lot of information about our partners. Um, I guess there are different aspects to that. I guess is there a kind of B two B side and a B two C side on our security role? There is, a, yeah, partner data, uh, partner data, even um, financial data, employee data. You know, there's a whole mm. raft of different types of data. Um, That's a good point. Yeah, internal security, I guess, as well. I mean, uh, our payroll information, I guess, is amongst your remit, I guess, as well as our our user facing yeah. type stuff. So is there a, a typical day? I mean, that's quite a, a broad um, spectrum of different types of stuff to look after. Is there a typical day for the security team or is it uh, a, a different list of things to do every single day? I'd say different every day. And sort of security is inherently incident driven. So that's if something happens, they take priority directly. So, But then there is always a, this sort of the day-to-day task that needs to be done in security as well. So there is always an element of sort of recurring activities but mostly it is security is sort of at least from my perspective instant driven mm. i think it's one of the things that i find really interesting about security and i've been in technology for nearly 20 years is that no one day is the same in security and um i've tried to detail in a blog a normal day or a, a standard day for me and it could be any number of of areas that we're looking at because security covers a whole business we could be speaking to a finance team one minute mm. and then dealing with engineers the next. Um, so it's extremely varied. Um, and it's also an industry that's changing so rapidly all the time. I never feel like I, I'm completely up to speed on, on what's going on. Um, there seems to be hacks and incidents externally everywhere these days um, and vulnerabilities. So it's a constant learning curve, um, mm. perhaps more so than lots of other technology roles that I've, 
I've either been in or, or, or seen. Yeah, there is always, so you need to keep up to date on sort of the security, sort of security trends, but then there is always understanding the technology that we have internally sort of to apply security to that. And this, it's a challenge for us to understand all the aspects of a different service. Like someone comes to us with a security related question, you need to understand the architecture, but you need their help as well to sort of to figure out how you can solve that problem. I guess there's a really interesting balance then between being proactive as in you guys identifying risks and getting out there and getting ahead of them before that happen, and being reactive to, to, to something that you might spot. Yeah, I mean, I, I've called myself kind of jack of all trades, master of none, because unlike, I can't think of another role in a business where you're expected to know a little bit about everything to do mm. with that business. Um, and security is that, uh, understanding the architecture, the tools that we're using, even just the makeup of the company. Um, so that, that's a challenge and it, it, you know again that's why it's such a learning curve at any I think when people come to a security team they perhaps expect that we know all these things and it's why we have to go away and research things at any point in time because we don't know everything about how, how it all fits together as a as a company um, that's interesting I guess do you guys um, find yourselves reaching out to teams more often or do you want teams to come to you or is that a bit of a balance of both um, I mean I guess one of the things we were talking about before we hit record was security is everyone's problem you know mm -hmm. if we have a team for it you, you want other squads to be thinking about security do you find that people come to you or do you have to go out and, and push remember security remember security it's both really yeah isn't it? I think it's a little bit a little bit of both in some in, in some areas you need to reach out that's the only way to get in terms of tons of people but but we sort of see more and more that people are actually coming to us and with their questions as well hmm. I think there's also a fine line these days between um Perhaps people getting a little bit bored of hearing about security because it is in the press so much and, um, and and trying to make things interesting, get people involved without seeming that we're getting in the way of what they're doing or affecting the, the, the style of work they do or the pace of the, um, the work that they're doing. So it's, it's a combination. We do lots of proactive work in, in getting out to, to, to engineers, to, to the whole business actually, um, but we are certainly encouraging people to come to us as much as as much at least to know that we're there and we're, we're available to to help and i think that's definitely pretty good here um i think we've got a very engaged mm -hmm. uh, staff that, that that know that we're here and, and know to come to us for um so one of the things we we're going to talk about was um on the slightly reactive side of, of what you guys do was uh, a scheme that you guys ran on a bug bounty recently um, so can you tell us a little bit about how we set up that bug bounty and what, what its goals were? Yeah, so for those that don't know what a bug bounty is, it's essentially a, um, I guess, a crowdsourced um, program where external uh, researchers, as they're called, but I guess it's hackers, white hat hackers, um, test your site and you pay them for what they, for what they find. The premise being that people will be hacking your applications anyway for not, not so... Uh, uh, nice reasons. Um, so we, we've engaged with a, a couple of companies over the last few years. Um, initially we trialed a, a, um, an application that perhaps we we made some mistakes on where we didn't set the scope of the testing perhaps as well as we, we, we should have um, and it meant that we were getting some rather poor bugs and having to pay out on, on things that we wouldn't normally pay out on. So when we set up that program was it essentially here's our bug bounty program um, have at it, or is it, is it more yeah, focused? Yeah, it, it was. It was pretty much here's our here's our website. Go and see what you can find, 
and we were finding that researchers were using tools that make it very easy for them to find things which we can do in our normal day jobs uh, I think hindsight's a wonderful thing looking back on, on that initial program um, had I known then what I know now about kind of setting more of a scope trying to push researchers down a particular route to, to areas that you really want to focus on making them work harder for their money mm -hmm. fundamentally um, that first scheme it was researchers going after low-hanging fruit really mm. which we would like to think we could do ourselves um, so we now um, we've moved on to a 365 day a year scheme um, with a company in the US called bug crowd which much of the internet economy is using um, and we get lots of value from that um, we tend to find that when researchers come on board to the program they'll try their hardest for X amount of days to find um, to find bugs will get paid for those bugs and then generally move on to something else. So mm. it's a it's a constant, um, you know, we're always looking to kind of refresh the program, get new researchers on board who are hungry to find these new these new bugs. So it's not just something that sits in the background. We, we, you know, we have to drive it and we have to get value from it. Mm -hmm. And how does that work then? So do they, uh, was it bug crowd you said was the sole okay, yeah. So do they submit a kind of like a, a reproducible incident I guess or they do so bug crowd have um, their own internal uh, security staff who um, if the bug is within scope um, their researchers are the, on the bug crowd side will replicate those bugs make sure that they're valid and within the scope of the testing that you've uh, specified and then they'll be sent on to us mm -hmm. um, again we, we replicate on our side to ensure that it's still uh, still an issue and then we allocate to the various parts of the business where that bug should be should be fixed. Um, but what I find interesting with this then is that we're, we don't really give them any guidance then as to we've just released this thing, go and test that thing. Is it very open to them to, to explore and, and try and discover stuff? That's another part of it that we're looking to improve. So I think initially we did kind of say, hey, here's our website, um, you know, best of luck, hmm. let's see what you find. I think now, and if you look at other internet businesses, they are starting to specify areas that they're really um, cons not concerned about, but areas that they um, would ha get more value from if bugs mm -hmm. were found. So, uh, you know, perhaps login aspects of your site or uh, payment applications, something along those those lines. So, and you can not only can you set the scope, but you can set the rewards based on what they find. So, if you have a login aspect of your website and they find some serious bugs there, you might want to offer more money for those mm. those kind of bugs so you are trying to force researchers down a certain route depending on um, on what you want to find yeah assign the higher bounties to the more um, valuable pieces of our site I guess yeah yeah That's I mean why do you think things have started to move to this bug bounty model instead of um, being like a, a pen test company or something instead is, is this a different is this a shift kind of like having researchers come into bug bounty programs rather than hire someone as a pen tester I think sort of that sort of the uh, bug bounty problem isn't sort of that's not a point in time. I think that's something mm. that you you keep running, and mm. so I th I think we're probably going to move into a sort of the when the two of them sort of complement each other, like getting a pen test. That's it's two separate things. It's not like you you don't you know stop doing pen tests to do bug bounties. You do them both mm. because they have different purposes to it. Uh, and I think it's just a I guess it's a certain way of life of being a researcher working for these companies and doing your research being very focused on maybe you're an expert in a certain type of vulnerability and that's what you do and you can actually make a living out of you just doing that which is do, do you find that um, say a new, a new vulnerability comes out that affects lots of internet economy companies 
Um, will that one researcher then kind of go, ah, oh, I found something. I will now go to multiple bug bounties I and claim so. the bounty yeah. in, in yeah. multiple places. Yeah. I think we've reached that point that, that they are that specialised, that you can use that sort of that specific vulnerability and just sort of cash in mm. all over. I, I think the longer term goal is when these... The low-hanging fruit would be taken care of by ourselves as, as an internal security team. Um, and then the, the things being found externally would be your more serious bugs, which are hopefully you would have less and less of those over time. I think the longer-term plan would be, you know, if we saw a glut of a certain type of, of vulnerability, um, that we would then take learnings from that and help work with our engineering teams to, to weed out that bug. Mm-hmm. so that that is then removed almost entirely from that process so that researchers are again having then to work harder for their money so they're having to find more in-depth bugs um, and invest a bit more time but yeah we, t- we do tend to see researchers y- you'll find a researcher is will have one or two vulnerabilities and that's what they go after mm. and yeah they'll move on to the next scheme which is why we just keep trying to rotate these uh, so do you find they, they kind of specialize in certain languages or certain uh, server technologies and they kind of like that is their research or well, they know where to go to find those things um and then they they move on um i think on the pen testing side it's interesting because i've i've come from an environment before where uh, you know pen testing was the holy grail and bug bounties were these kind of new crazy schemes and, mm. and why would you encourage people to hack your um to hack your your infrastructure but um for an organization like skyscanner where it's so fast-paced it's so agile there's so much code going into production as oscar said that pen testing it's a point in time and it's an event a, isn't it it's... a day later it could be you know we could have pushed out so much code that could have changed that so you have this ongoing testing capability now which we we probably didn't have historically mm-hmm. and there's always a there might be these weird, intricate sort of logical bugs that takes a lot of time to reproduce. Or, and sort of in the bug body scheme, you can actually have researchers doing that type of thing because it's, you know, and in pen tests, you might not have the time to do that or have the scope to do that. So it's sort of, I think they complement each other pretty well, though. Yeah. Hmm. And I find the pace, actually, of, of the bug bounty scheme of bug crowd working hard on their side to replicate the bug so you know that by the time it comes to you, it is valid. Um, and you're not having to invest a lot of time um, figuring out whether they've stuck to what you've asked them to do. Um, and yep. then the, the ability to kind of create Jira tickets quickly, push them out to squads and get them, get them fixed within the time, uh, the time scales that we, we want. It just, it just feels a lot more fluid for the kind of organization that we are. Pen testing, you have a pen test done, you wait a week for the report, you then mm. have to find out whether the things in that report are things that you want to fix. Um, and by the time that's happened, it could <laughs> it could be completely different in here. Um, so I understand that bug bounties don't work for lots of organisations. It has to be you know, external facing, um, you know, generally websites. Mm, it's good, but I mean, places I've worked previously that have done pen tests, um, it's usually been in your sandbox environment. You know, like here's our pen test environment. Go and test that before we release it. Exactly. I guess companies like ours, where we release on a hourly basis, um, there's always going to be potentially something new. Um, and I guess when the bug bounty comes in, I mean, how quickly are we turning around any of these bugs? I mean, assuming it's super quick in general from so, reports to close. Yeah, we have SLAs um, dependent on the priority of the bug. So, mm. um, you know, I, I won't go into detail of what they are. But um, <laughs> I, I think we want to get to a point where the very, very low level bugs either just aren't coming to us or we have a capability internally to deal with yeah. those without having to use something like a, a bug crowd. And I guess it ties into like our release chain as well, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that we have such a fast release chain means that if a bug gets raised, 
we can release it to and get a fix out there so quickly. And making a call as to what we fix and what we don't fix. Yeah. I mean, not every single bug that comes to us is something that is worthwhile investing. Um, you know, it could be an informational bug, for instance, where mm. the, the, there's just almost zero risk attached to that bug. It's been found genuinely, but um, you know, you might not want to. You know, you might have other priorities before before you deal with that. So I think that brings us on to we're, we're not going to talk about um, specific bugs, um, but I think that the the type of bugs that have been raised is quite interesting. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, OWASP guidelines, so I guess for people that don't know, OWASP, I had to look this up, <laughs> is the Open Web Application Security Project, and uh, they frequently release a, a top 10 vulnerabilities list. Yeah, um, it hasn't really changed in, in years, has it? The OWASP no, I 10. think it's up for renewal though, but it's still sort of, the, the, the top 10 is still sort of, I think it's still, still uh, accurate. It, it's almost depressingly static, I guess, mm. isn't it, that you see the same stuff? time and time it is and I, I don't want to go into too many details of other organizations in this podcast but there's a well-known hack from 18 months ago or so which was a sql injection attack which has been mm. around for 20 or so years and yet people are still you know having public facing websites which are open to these kind of um these kind of uh, vulnerabilities which is a little bit scary given how long OWASP has been around yeah uh, number one is injection attacks yeah. um there's that, uh, you've probably seen it, the XKCD comic where the, the character names his child uh, little Johnny Drop Tables. Uh, <laughs> and the school rings up and says, oh, your child's broken our database. Like, I've, seen one, website. <laughs> I've seen a car number plate that had one to try and be caught by... Uh, I think I saw it, was that the uh, OCR, the yeah, optical character? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we're pretty good here. I don't think we suffer injection attacks. I would hope not. Um, I mean, th this is the kind of stuff that you'd hope that most organisations now automate, test, and yeah. and get around that. Um, I mean, looking through that, I, I should have shared with the list. In fact, that should have been the test to see how many of the top ten you could <laughs> you could name. Um, but it's injection attacks, weak authentication, cross-site scripting, that a lot of common stuff there. Um, do you find that the bug bounties that come in are a little bit more exotic than this top 10 because of, of where we are in our kind of security maturity or are, are, are we guilty of some of these at a lower level? I think it's a fair mix of, mix of bugs, wouldn't you say so? Um, I'd seen, I've never seen an organization not suffering from cross-site scripting, so <laughs> I'd say we had a few of those. Um, I mean, I guess in some ways it comes into what you were saying, Stu, around... Um, where that vulnerability is. If it's a cross-site scripting bug in your uh, blog newsreel, you might not care about it so much. If it's part of your core platform, that's a P1, fix that straight away. Um, but um, like the, when we are saying earlier that security is kind of everyone's problem, um, do you find developers are kind of aware of this top 10 of OWASP and kind of like test their code before it gets out there into the wild? I think they're becoming more aware. I think my concern with engineers from a secure coding point of view is whether secure coding is part of um, university degrees and computer engineering degrees. I had assumed it was, but I'm not entirely sure that it is. Mm. So I think I think it is getting better on that front. But I, I guess one of the challenges I've had personally in Skyscanner is People are very open to the idea of fixing bugs, that, that, that's what we do. Um, but it's trying to convince engineers that a security bug of priority whatever mm -hmm. is as important as a functional bug. So for them, something not working in production is perceived as more important than something 
like a security bug that hasn't actually had an impact yet, but could have an impact. Mm. And I think that's just a hearts and minds thing over time to let, and also teaching engineers what could actually happen if this was exploited. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for us as security people to say, this is a P2 cross-site scripting bug, go and fix it. But if they're not aware of actually what could happen if we don't fix it, then their perception of the of the impact or the risk is different from ours. Yeah. So again, that's, that's just a learning and a training thing. Um, rather, and you can implement lots of uh, controls around trying to scan code before it goes into production, those, those style um, implementations. But it, it's as much around teaching engineers best practice as... Uh, sort of technical controls I guess something we touched on there was the, the idea of risk um, around a security bug as well I mean it's not just financial risk to, to a company I guess there's a lot of reputational risk as well um, you think about some high level public hacks that have happened um, that maybe has not cost anyone money but is is bad for a company's rep if it gets out there um, I'm thinking about probably shouldn't name individual companies um, but well something big like Sony you know that mm. had their PlayStation Network hack quite a few years ago um, I don't think many people lost money out of that but the, the reputational damage was huge for them at the time it's not necessarily that companies uh, lose money in terms of uh, you know some major hack it, it's the knock on effect of what it costs to fix it um, reputational damage of customers going somewhere else rather than using your service uh, bad press. I mean, some of the ones, some of the names that we won't mention, are becoming the norm. Anytime I go and see a security presentation, mm. they're the names that get talked about. And I would hate to be going to conferences and see the company that I work for as one of those examples. The irony is that if these things happen, the investment that those companies then put into security is is generally vast. Mm. So it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword where you don't want major security incidents to happen in in any business, uh, but the knock-on effect of those things happening, mm. um, hopefully not external uh, reputational damaging incidents, it actually drives uh, improvements in security and uh, and budget and people, uh, really. Yeah, kind of element of once burned, twice shy kind of element, which you, you kind of don't want to be burned in the first place. But. You don't. I, I think it's attitudes are changing towards security. Rather than people perceiving that a security incident or security bug is a bad thing and therefore you're not doing your job properly or the company is not mature enough, I think that's changing a little bit. I think it's perceived now that these are just things that are found mm. um, and it's how you deal with it and how you then learn from those those things and move on and, and continue to mature as a, as a security team. And I think we're on that, that journey ourselves. Something you mentioned there about um does security get taught uh, as, as part of people's degrees and you know, like as part of their training uh, wherever you come into to, to development? Um, do you think the way that software works now has, has had an impact on that? We're moving into a world where uh, APIs are web-facing, um, things are microservices, there's lots of little bits connecting. Um, back when I was a developer, it was a monolith, um, there was that good old, it's on the internal network, so I don't need to worry about this. That's just not true anymore, is it? I guess things are much more on the internet. Yeah, I think that's a big shift of sort of looking to sort of, uh, instead of having a perimeter that saves you from everything bad, you're sort of seeing that it's everywhere, right? And you, you need to sort of protect each individual service as it is and sort of, and sort of assume compromise in some way, at least from a security yeah. point of view. Um, so I think that's, that is a big shift in security, how to, how to perceive. And it's been that for a few years, but I think now people are trying to really, you know, finally realizing that and sort of actually sort of making that actionable. Mm -hmm. I, I read a quote um, a 
couple of days ago on Twitter uh, about Scottish business in general, where one in four um, were the victim of a cyber attack within the last 12 months. Mm. And I replied to the tweet saying, yeah, it's only because the other three don't know. <laughs> and I think the days of just assuming that your company is not suffering some kind of incident or attack, it doesn't have to be an external <laughs> incident. It could be one of your employees uploading data to Dropbox that you're not aware of. It, you know, These are all incidents. These are all security or data breaches, I, I guess, mm. if, if your company policies don't allow for that. So we've got to get out of that mindset. I think it is changing. Uh, some organizations are quicker than others at, at grasping that. Yeah, I guess there's so many leading internet-facing edges now. Um, the fact you mentioned Dropbox is really interesting that, you know, somebody might think, oh, I need to get this file home, I'll just put it on Dropbox. Um, I guess there are so many useful internet tools now that you think, oh, I'll just copy that information over there. Um, and some people may not think of the, the consequences of that. That's really interesting. Um, expanding on that a little bit, um, do you think the march towards microservices and internet-facing things and the way people develop software in general, no longer is it that bit of tin in your secure uh, server room that you own. It's much more cloud-facing. It's AWS. It's it's whatever platform you use. And people moving towards DevOps. Has that changed people's, or should it change the way people think about security from a developer point of view? Well, it, it's more of like we don't own security anymore as a security squad. Like every every developer owns security. I think that's something that sort of we're just here to help them realize that and give them the tools and the training that they need to be able to do the security part of their jobs. Um, I think that's interesting in that for me, and it's something I've tried. I'm trying to to push in that as part of an engineering role, security is within that role. So your, your job spec will have security mm. in that. Um, when you get interviewed, you'll be asked about secure coding or, or techniques. Um, I think there has been a separation between the two up until the last few years. Um, I think one of the, the lots of challenges <laughs> here um, from a security point of view, I think we allow our engineers and, and teams to use so many different types of tools, uh, very culturally open, um, and that can be difficult to, to embed uh, some of the more standard security practices, which you would see across more um, flat structured organizations. And that, that's a good thing. That, that allows us to move at the pace that we do, but it also means that some of the standard security things that we have looked at in the past just don't work. Um, I've had to think, think outside the box a little bit in my time here about how we embed that and, and get it to work. And yeah, it's been a, a mixture of success and some failure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess no longer can you just say that's the firewall guy's problem. Um, and a lot of these full stacks, you are now, you are the security guy, you are the firewall guy, you are the database guy. And that locking things down is no longer just the way to, to do I mean, it's not going mm. to stop you getting attacked or, or breached the, these days. I think that was the old school method. Restrict everything as much as you can, restrict access, stop people using things. That may work in certain organizations, but it, I don't think it makes them any less of a target, and I don't think it stops them becoming victims of uh, uh, attacks. Not at this company, but I think uh, a place I've worked previously, um, the downside of locking things down is that people can be amazingly creative oh, at yeah. getting around things that are locked down, which means they make even worse security decisions. Um, again, I, I won't mention where, but you, know, you wouldn't be allowed to email certain... Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to put certain files on a network drive, and people will come up with very creative ways of how to share a file. Very creative and very bad ways. Um, 
if I think back to an old job I had when I was a, a much younger bloke, um, we didn't even have external email uh, because it was perceived that it was extremely risky. Mm. Okay, this was 15 years ago or so, but that, that to me is just alien now. And, and I think you've got to allow people the freedom to do their jobs. You've got to trust people as, as, as much as you can and have the controls in place to do what you need to do. Um, I talk a lot when I do conferences about kind of using technology rather than trying to force a change of behavior. It's mm. very difficult for any of us to change, immediately change the behavior of 900 people across 10 global offices. But it's easy for me to roll out a technology solution that might help prevent something or alert us to, to the fact something is happening or not working the way, the way we want. That's not gonna work for everything, but um, I think that's the way that I've moved my thought process in my time at Skyscanner. I guess there's a level of pragmatism, isn't there? That um, much in the same way as uh, the Skyscanner product isn't static, security isn't a static thing, it should be evolving. And no, and that it's, and... it's impossible to secure everything. <laughs> we have a running gag of secure all the things. <laughs> it's just not doable. So you have to try and focus on where you think you're most at risk um, and, and do the best you can on that. Uh, and it's not to say that we ignore other things, it's just that you have so many priorities and some things just won't get get looked at. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the only way to truly secure any website these days is to turn it off. Almost. <laughs> not, not be on the internet, not be I on guess. The internet, is the, yeah. I think from our perspective, I think it's a lot of sort of investing in secure by default, so sort of making it, making it easy to do the right thing and for us being approachable, because security in general has been a very sort of, oh, the, the grumpy security guys. You know, we <laughs> tend to be grumpy at times, yes, but I think it's a lot sort of, we want to help you know, Skyscanner build secure products. It's not something, we're not gonna, you know, we're not running our batting heads here, so. No, we're not trying to stop people do, doing their jobs. Um. I'll write that down as a quote for, for, <laughs> for everyone else. Um, no, that's good. Um, one of the things we wanted to touch on was um, mobile as a, as a kind of new channel. Um, so obviously we have uh, mobile web, we have uh, desktop, we've got mobile app. What do you think uh, new channels like that fit into to security? Um, I guess mobile isn't new anymore. I'm thinking about apps. I guess we've now got new channels like bots, um, like um, Alexa and things like that. Do they propose new challenges in terms of security? or? I think they do, just because of the scope of what we then have to consider a risk. I think some of the... Uh, vulnerability side can be very is very similar to the web but you know, it's, it's just a, a different platform in terms of what you're pushing out um, but we tell you know there's a no wasp top 10 for mobile for example mm. and it's very similar to the web uh, uh, wasp um, I think when you look at some of the compliance aspects these days they're, they're just so far behind they haven't caught up with mobile at all uh, we we have some PCI DSS within our business and it it's just not mobile friendly at all. So, so mm. some of that aspect hasn't caught up or, or isn't up to speed with uh, with the mobile side. And I guess, do you think any of those platforms, I mean, are they just new channels on the internet? I mean, from a security point of view, it's just another endpoint or? Yeah, from a technology point of view, I think it's just for us, it's just another API call, I guess, sort of. It is, I think when we look at things like laptops or desktops, we have a certain amount of control over those, whereas mm. if it's phones, I think less so, especially when people are perhaps using personal phones and have their work email on there or mm. um, other applications they're using. How do we control that aspect when somebody could be using that, that device for their own use? Uh, that, that's becoming more difficult to do. 
uh, compared to, to uh, machines that we own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that ties into the, the prior discussion of sort of the perimeter. I mean, it's sort of everything you now is just broken into pieces. And, and as well, sort of employee laptops and devices as well, sort of how, how you sort of perceive that from a security point of view. And I think that's sort of the same thing, right? It's just broken apart and if people have their mobile devices, it's not like it's not like it used to be. Mm. So they were handed a, a device. And uh, one thing I found interesting, we did a little experiment uh, at a local coffee shop about a year ago where we spoofed a Wi-Fi access point um, and you'd be amazed how many people connect to that without even checking what it is or, or trying to ensure that it's in any way safe. And I think that's just the nature of the, mm. the in society now, we're using these machines so much. It will, do people pay that much attention to what it is they're connecting to and what they're doing? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, it's only us paranoid <laughs> security guys that tend to do that. I don't know, I mean, you, you read so many things about the internet of things and uh you know, it just always feels like we're one Internet of Things horror story away from like your fridge stealing your credit well, cards. Well, um, I don't I'm know. I'm sure you... it's probably happened already that a fridge has stolen my credit cards. Um, we um we have a guy at our meetup next month called Ken Monroe who um works for a company called Pentest Partners, and they uh, along alongside lots of other good work, they they tend to look at hacking um more interesting. Uh, things so they hacked the child's uh, doll about two years ago, which is <laughs> now being removed. The latest one over the last few weeks is a sex toy, which is which has a camera on it that you can now hack. And we can all have a bit of a giggle about it, but this is the reality of of everyday objects, or not so everyday objects, perhaps <laughs> um, <laughs> being connected to the internet and the risks that are associated with it. I'm now wondering if this section will get edited out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, funnily, uh, I've I've been to talks by um, by Ken before, and I remember him telling a really good story about some social engineering hacks. So using LinkedIn as a as a, an attack vector. So someone uh, has joined your company and add you on LinkedIn, and they haven't. You know, it's it's, it's a social hacker trying to make friends at, at the the attack company. Um, some really fascinating stuff. Where it doesn't get down to technology, it's down to how people interact. Absolutely, which is a, a a big kind of forgotten part of security. Um, cool. Um, so do you think, just to kind of wrap up, do you think what, what's the next big things for the security squad here? Have you got any big items that you're lining up next or is it continuing this balance of reactive and proactive? I think we're on a continuing maturity path in security. We're now heavily focused on the product security side as much as operational. Uh, we have dedicated focus on product security so code hygiene, threat modeling, ensuring that we're building products securely from the outset. Mm. And then on the operational side, uh, just continuing to use the best technology that we have available, um, continuing to recruit in those areas uh, to, to really drive us. It, it, we're never going to get to a point where we're happy with security. It's just mm. an ongoing uh, battle, I guess. Uh, so there's always lots to do. There's always the next stage to, to go to. And I think we're, we're on the path to that. Yeah, it's a good point. I think I guess if you, as a company, think you're happy with your security, that's probably complacency, I guess, at that point. I think any security guy, manager, whoever, will probably tell you he could double his team or her mm. team and not get anywhere near being able to do the work that they want to do. And I think there are still lots of businesses, big businesses, uh, or prominent businesses who have very little security, or it's embedded in somebody else's role rather than mm. a, a specific um, team. 
Um, and, and that's that's scary given that it's 2017 and security for me anyway, and I'm sure uh, any other security person will agree, should probably be at the top of most businesses' agenda. There's very little other, other things that could happen to a business that will get you in the papers as quickly as a, as a mm. loss of a huge amount of user data, other than perhaps your website being unavailable for a huge period of time or some legal uh, complication or... You know, security is, is the thing that's getting businesses in, in bad press, I think, these, these days. Absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned there, um, there's probably not a company that wouldn't say we need more security people, or, you know, grow our teams. Um, so if you're listening to this and would like to join the security team, um, check uh, skyscanner.net slash jobs and um, you can check out what positions we've got available there. Um, and if you email us at codevoyagers at skyscanner.com with your CV and a cover letter, um, we'll make sure to, to fast track that through to the, the right people team. Um, but yeah, I think that's us for, for this podcast. So thanks both. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Any feedback, uh, tweet us at Code Voyagers and we'll speak to you next time.